So I want you to think back with me to the time, perhaps when you first experienced real disappointment in someone, um, when you were really let down. Perhaps it was a best friend. Perhaps it was a, a father that didn't do what he should have done, or perhaps a spouse who uh, didn't walk out the commitments. But you were disappointed that you had trusted You had relied upon, and uh, they did not meet uh, you or their commitment as they ought to. What do we do in those situations? Do we wall ourselves up? Do we just protect ourselves from ever being hurt again? Do we not trust? How do we walk this out? Well, you know, Isaiah offers us a place of hope that is both massive and solid. In, In fact, Isaiah offers us a God that you can trust without fear of ever being let down or disappointed. Uh, we find this God in, uh, in the book of Isaiah. Now, uh, the book of Isaiah is, is clearly a, a daunting task here. It, it's, it's massive in scope. It's 66 chapters. Uh, I, I think few of us read it because it's so big. It, when you do begin to read the book of Isaiah, it, it tends to hop around a bit. Um, it, it speaks in, in, in these severe judgment passages, and then it speaks in these very comforting passages. It has lawsuits. It has hymns. Um, it, 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 the genre changes from prophecy to poetry uh, to historical narrative. Um, the peoples change. You're introduced to people that you don't even know, Cushites and Moabites and Babylonians, Assyrians, people that we don't even speak about. And I, I have to admit, it's, it is um, yeah, an intimidating, I've, I've shied away from this book uh, because of its difficulty to understand. I, I, I feel like it's, uh, try to study Isaiah is like, it's like scaling Mount Everest. And to try to cover the book in one sermon, which I'm going to do today, I, I feel like I'm saying, hey, take 20 minutes and go to the Louvre and enjoy it. Or take a half an hour and walk through the Smithsonian and try to get as much as you can. I, I feel that's the task I have, and I don't know if that's just a, a, a kind of an indirect plea to be kind to me if I just blow an engine up here. But, um, but I want to kind of give you a big picture of the book so that as we walk through it over the next uh, 12 to 15 weeks that you'll have something to hang the individual pieces to. I told Carol yesterday... There are so many jewels with, with just like we're going to read about how he speaks to Judah in Jerusalem. The significance of that as it pertains to Jesus being in the house of David, which was Jerusalem, and, and all that speaks to the New Testament. We can't even touch that. And, and there are just jewels that we just have to fly over. And I trust that as you begin to read through this, um, yeah, that God will give you the grace. Um, So turn with me, if you will, to Isaiah 1. We're going to take a big leap into the book and read the first two verses. Um, Isaiah chapter 1, we're going to read 1 and 2, and it's just going to be a a starting point for us. Isaiah writes, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. 
Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Now, it begins very simply stating that this is a vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos. Now, he's just stating a lineage which was customary. We don't know a lot about his father. Uh, Some uh, have conjectured that he may have been related to King Azariah, which means that um, Isaiah may have been of royal descent. It would account for his education. The Hebrew in, in the book is a high form of Hebrew. It would account for his access to circles of royalty, which he which he utilized in his work as a prophet. Uh, We don't know a ton more. He was obviously a prophet. He was married. He had two children. But besides that, little is known. Uh, But it is important that he was a prophet. And and I want to just speak, if I can, I want to just speak about Isaiah the prophet and kind of give you a lay of the land of of his life as a prophet. And then we're going to speak about his times. What time did he prophesy in? And then, and then I want to look at the message of the book as a whole. So that's kind of where we'll be going. So Isaiah the prophet, you see that he is a prophet, married, and uh, probably had some royal blood in him. But the role of the prophet is the important feature here. And, and I want you to understand the significance, because I think in today's world, we look at the role of prophets as predictors of the future. We kind of equate them with, if you will, the fortune tellers or the palm readers of today. If you just put out your palm, I can look at it and try to predict what's going to happen in your life. Well, uh, this would be too reductionistic. It's not that the prophets don't speak about the future, but they do much, much more. The prophets were a gift of God to the people of God. The prophets were given to help the people understand how to live in the covenant that God had established with Abraham. Uh, The the prophets were calling people to live in conformity to what God had already said. The prophets weren't really adding new revelation as much as calling them to live according to the revelation that God had given them. One Old Testament scholar actually taught at the seminary I went to called them covenant enforcement mediators. They were there to mediate. They were there to bring the people to live according to this covenant. Uh, They would apply the commands of God. They would remind them of the promises of God. They would warn them about the warnings of God. They would call them to tell them what the uh, requirements that God had laid down. It's a critical role. Uh, They would give the intentionality of the word, much like Jesus did. If you remember when we studied in Matthew chapter 5, that Jesus took the law and showed the true intention of it as he taught it. That's what these prophets would do. They were a help. Moses would be an example of one. In Deuteronomy 28, he warned, hey, if you walk in obedience, here are the blessings. If you walk in disobedience, here's what's coming. So they were a help to us, clarifying and describing God's intent and his law. Now, this is not to say that the prophets didn't speak about the future. They did. But the way they spoke about the future wasn't in predictive form. They're saying, here's what God's promised. God has said he's going to do this. So if you walk in this way, this is what's going to happen. If you walk in this way, this is what's going to happen. So the prophets were there to assure us that the promises of God, that the things God had said will happen. And here's what's going to happen if you do this. And here's what's going to happen if you do this. So so therefore our benefit. Now, Um, Isaiah compiled, as I said, the largest of the prophetic books. 
66 books. Now, it breaks down this way. The first half, 1 to 39, really is much darker than the second half. It speaks much more to um, God's judgment upon the people's disobedience. There is poetry and there is, and there is uh, prophecy, um, but, but it, it's very dark in nature over the disobedience of the people. And God speaks with some very authoritative tones as he, as he challenges the people. Now, at the end of that section, there's this historical piece where we're going to zoom in on Hezekiah's reign, this last king mentioned in the list of kings. And, and he's going to speak about the time when the Assyrian army had actually surrounded Jerusalem and was threatening Jerusalem. Um, and then in chapter 40 and forward, it seems to get lighter. It's almost a wash in light. There's hope and there's comfort. There's promises of restoration. It, it, it's, it's a beautiful, some of the most uh, beautiful passages of Scripture you will find in this section of Isaiah. There's judgment and there's salvation. It's really the theme of the book. Now, at the end, so Isaiah compiles this book. He would have preached it over time. You see the length of time he was preaching. Isaiah's end was difficult, according to tradition. Um, Most believe that he was um, killed by Manasseh, Hezekiah's son. Tradition holds that they put him in a log, a hollow log, and they sawed him in two. And there's an oblique reference in Hebrews chapter 11, 37 that would, has seen that, that he, he labored faithfully to the end, prophesying, speaking to God's people, words that they did not always want to hear. And, and it caused me to, to stop, you know, in just looking at Isaiah the prophet, I'm very thankful to be able to walk with you through this challenge. I, I, I'm thankful because of God giving us his word. That's the first thing I'm thankful for. You know, the book that we're going to study is God's word, but God has inspired Isaiah to compile these truths that we now read. You know, we have a, a great New Testament verse in 2 Timothy chapter 3.16 where uh, we read that all scripture is, is uh, breathed out by God, is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be a complete and equipped for every good work. Now, remember when Paul penned those words to Timothy, uh, he was referencing the Old Testament. He was speaking about the book of Isaiah among all the books of the Old Testament. So the scripture that we will be studying is God's word, breathed out. It's for us. It's for our benefit, our correction, our reproof, our instruction. The assumption is we need to hear this word. We need to pay attention to this. But I want you to understand the difficulty. The scriptures aren't like the newspaper. They're not like a scientific journal. They require diligence and effort to read this. But I want want to go through the whole book. We won't be going through every chapter, but we'll be taking slices out of all the main sections. But I want you to know that that we're going to try to look at it comprehensively. I, I think many of us are guilty of what I would call biblical plundering. We go to a book and we pull out those things that we like and that make us feel good, but we don't read the whole book. And so when we get to these difficult passages, like I'll read one today, where, where Isaiah says, he speaks for God, and he says, I'm enraged at the nations and I'm going to slaughter them. 
We don't read those. Those, are, those don't help me when I have a test coming up, or those don't help me when I'm having trouble meeting the bills. But we don't want to be guilty of this biblical plundering. We want to try to take a comprehensive look at the scriptures. So I'm thankful to God that he's given us his word. I'm also thankful to God that he's given us this servant like Isaiah, you know, who was faithful until and including the end. You know, we're going to read in a couple of weeks Isaiah chapter 6 where he receives the call. And so in Isaiah 6, it's a, a, a seminal passage. He's brought into the presence of God and God says, Whom shall we send? Who will go for us? Who's going to take this message of judgment? Well, you know, all of our hands are at the side. We don't want that role. And Isaiah, here I am, send me. Isaiah takes the role of being a prophet, bringing a message of judgment to the people. He knew it would be met with resistance. He knew it would be met with anger and bitterness, and and he did it. He did it for the glory of God. He did it according to the call of God. And so I I sit there and I think, I'm thankful to God for a servant like Isaiah. I'm thankful to the servants, the, the, the men and the servants of this church and other former pastors that have labored faithfully over the years through difficulty and hardship, and they still love the church, and they still love Christ, and they're laboring faithful. I'm thankful for them. I'm thankful for many of you, as you as a servant of God has suffered well. You've suffered well in the midst of great tragedy. You've done it well. It has bolstered our faith. Our faith is going to be increased watching Isaiah. I want us to know that our faith should be increased, our faith should be increasing watching each other. If you are suffering now, and you're suffering well. We watch you. We want to see the grace of God manifest in your life. We want to learn so that when we suffer, you may watch us to see the grace of God displayed in us. So I'm thankful for Isaiah, for his writings. It's difficult. It's massive. It will be challenging. But I tell you, I think the reward will be there. So this Isaiah obviously prophesied in a place in time. We see this in the first half of that verse where he prophesied to the... It says... The vision of Isaiah, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now, he saw this vision. What does that mean? Um, Does it mean like he saw in the sky kind of these pictorial images going across that God's communicating with her? Or is it some trance-like stance that he gets into and and God just kind of beams information in his mind? I don't think that's it. I think you'll see in chapter 2, verse 1, almost the exact same language when he says, the word of God that he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So I think God communicated to him in language that he has declared to us, that he is speaking to us the words of God. And these words of God that he speaks are concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now what does that mean? Well, I think it means, at least chronologically, speaking to the the people of the covenant, children of Abraham. He, He has a message concerning the people of Judah and Jerusalem, but I think it goes beyond that. I think it goes to the nations, because Israel, according to Isaiah 43, Israel was to be a people that was to witness the glory of God. And through their lives, particularly their faith and obedience to God, their trust in his promises that would dictate the holiness of their lives, that they were to be that way, and the nations would see it, and they would come to Judah to find the teachings of this God. So I think he's writing this vision concerning them. But it was, to, it was to bake into them so that the nations would come. And the nations have come. 
That's us, the goyim or the, or the Gentiles have come. I think this is a message for us. You know, in the Old Testament, the people were gathered by faith in the promises of God and they were marked by an ethnicity and a land. Well, the people of the New Testament are a people gathered by faith in Christ who is the fulfillment of his promises, but now we're marked by the Spirit. So the Spirit now marks us. So we are now the people of God, and this message is for us. Isaiah is quoted 66 times in the New Testament, more than any other book except the Psalms. So this is a message for us. It's Judah and Jerusalem, the people of God, which includes us. But I want you to understand the perilous times in which he prophesied. You notice this list of kings. Many of us don't know who these kings are. Let me just take a few minutes and try to explain it to you. Isaiah uh, prophesied in the reign of Uzziah and Jotham and Ahaz and and Hezekiah. Uh, This would go back to probably 790 B.C., 800 years before Christ, all the way until about 680. Um, And Isaiah began his ministry at the end of Uzziah's reign. He was a a good king. He was a strong king. His reign lasted 52 years during his reign. Uh, Land was gained. Uh, Again, recognition among the nations for Israel was gained. And wealth was gained. But instead of this time of peace and prosperity, leading the people to see the faithfulness of God and wanting to live uh, by faith in his promises, they became arrogant. They became greedy. They began practicing social injustice. They became idolaters. Well, in 745 B.C., Uzziah died, and his son, Jotham, uh, reigned in this place for 16 years. And he carried on, the, you don't read much about him, but he carried on the policies of his father. But during his reign, this dark power in the east began to rise. Assyria, nation was coming out of the rubble and was coming in power. And, and, then, and then Jotham dies, and then Ahaz, his son, reigns for 16 years. And it's during his reign that Assyria began to consume nations around her. And so she began to move this nation. Well, now Ahaz, the king, and he's to be the king of Israel. The king of Israel was, or the king of Judah was the Messiah, the anointed one of God placed in that position. He was to entrust in faith before the covenant-keeping God, Yahweh, rest, even before the armies of the world. Well, as the armies of the world came to his gates, he did not rest in God, but he actually made a treaty with the Assyrian army, paid tribute, even embraced their worship even led Israel into greater idolatry. Well, when he died, Hezekiah, his son, reigned for 29 years. He was different than his father. He cleansed the temple. He reformed the nation. And, of course, this brought the ire of the Assyrians, returned with their huge army surrounding Jerusalem. Isaiah had gone to Ahaz and said, don't trust in alliances, trust in the Lord your God, and he didn't. He goes to Hezekiah, says, don't trust. Don't be tempted to look to Egypt for help. Trust in the Lord your God. And he did. And the Assyrian army never entered Jerusalem. Sadly, in a number of years, Hezekiah opened his heart to the Babylonian Empire, which began to rise. And this would bring about this sad ending to chapter 39, where judgment was coming, You show them all the treasuries, they're all going to Babylon, and you're going with them. 
judgment was going to fall. The very people of God would be taken out of the land of God. It's a sad point in the book, but it's a picture of the lack of trust that the people of Judah had in God. Now, I'm telling you all this geopolitical maneuvering here, not because it's the main point of the story, but because it's the context that God is using these crises, this Assyrian crises, as kind of the point at the end of the spear to reveal to Judah that they had no trust in God. They didn't believe that God was good and a covenant-keeping God. Now, you know, when we take a step back from the text just for a minute and look at your own lives, how do you understand the various crises in your lives? I mean, how do, you, do you understand the divine purposes that God has when tragedy enters in, whether it's health or whether it's finances, uh, whether, it's, whether it's governments collapsing, whether it's relationships beginning to disintegrate? How do you understand these crises? Do you think that God is doing them to reveal to himself the degree of faith and trust that we have in God? Well, God already knows. God uses these crises to reveal to us what is the foundation of our trust. Do we really trust in all the promises that God has given to us of his care, of his compassion, of his love, of his mercy? In other words, he's revealing to us these things. See, we are so easily self-deceived in terms of our spiritual prowess. We are so easily convinced that we have this deep and abiding trust, but it's only when the spear comes do we really begin to see, what do I believe? Do I really believe God is good? Do I really believe he'll save me? Do I really believe that he'll provide and protect or do I, begin to need, do I need to begin to turn to other alliances and other gods and other idolatries to pursue, to get what I think I need? I think that's what he's doing here. He's showing, do we trust? It's really what it's about. God revealing himself as this good covenant-keeping God, will we trust in him? So when the government collapses, when your life begins to falter, where are you going to turn? To whom are you going to seek help? Will it be God? That's kind of the question. So here's Isaiah the prophet, a little bit about his life. Here's the times in which he, which he lived and the perilous times and the people to whom he prophesied, this long list of kings that he worked with, again calling the people to trust in God. And that's really the main point of this book is will we trust in the faithfulness of God? Uh, all, the, all the background that I've given you is to just set up this this. This vision, what is the vision? Well, look with me in verse 2. Because in verse 2, we see that while it's a vision given to Isaiah, and Isaiah is declaring the vision, vision it's really about God. It's, it's God's vision. Look what he says. He, it's almost as if he's speaking from the borders of another world. In verse 2, he says, Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. See, in this vision, God is calling the cosmos to himself. Heavens, earth, come to me. I'm going to present a case for you. And God is going to argue a case. You'll see that next week when we look at verse 18 of the first chapter. He's presenting a case against his people. He's saying, you've rebelled against me. In chapter 1, he's going to call them whores. They're harlots, pursuing after other lovers. 
Chapter 5, he's going to condemn them for being the vineyard of God, and yet they produce no fruit. In 59, he says, your feet are swift to run to evil, to shed innocent blood. Your thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, desolation, destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they don't know. There is no justice. In other words, where the people of God were to be marked by this trust in God and his goodness, that trusting in God being our provider, we don't need to turn to all, to all the other gods of this world. We don't need to run to other people, other things, other avenues. We can just rest in God. I mean, that's the whole idea of the Sabbath, right? All the nations work every day of the week. God says, no, 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 you take off the Sabbath. That wasn't a burden. It was to display to the people, I will care for you. You will be the only nation that doesn't work on that day because I will provide for you. And the people will see my goodness and glory through you. But they were evidencing none of that. And that's why in Isaiah 6, he's called up and said, you take this message of judgment. They won't listen to you. Their ears are stopped. Their eyes are closed. But you're going to bring a message of judgment, none the same. Because they didn't trust. So when you, when you look at your life now as the people of God, the Christian here, do you trust? And, and how do you evidence this trust? Upon what fruit is born? Well, like your need for security, for example. When you're scared, do you turn to God I mean, or do you turn to put more pressure on the government? The government has to protect me. Or do you turn to your checkbook and your finances? That will secure me. That will keep me safe. Or when you look for happiness, to whom do you turn? Do you turn to a relationship, a new relationship? Do you turn to greater prosperity? Do you turn to some new avenue of pleasure that's going to make you happy? I mean, God has created us. Wouldn't he be the one that would be able to provide a perfect happiness and joy for us? And when you even look at your acceptance with God, uh, when you're concerned over, will God accept me? Do you turn to yourself? Say, well, I have done this, and I have done this. I mean, Ray prayed beautifully for us in that way. God, deliver me from relying on myself. Or do we turn to God to provide a Savior for us? That our faith in our acceptance with God rests upon the Father giving the Son, not upon what I've done. So it's a message of judgment. It's going to be a hard message. I, I want you, especially next week, we're going to be looking uh, at the idolatries of the age. All the, all, the, all the temptations that we have to turn to everything but God. But, but it's not just a message of judgment. There's also a message of comfort that we see. And we're going to see this in Isaiah 40 in particular. This is where it kind of, it's, it's threaded throughout the whole book, but, but we see it beautifully in, in chapter 40. It's another scene where it's as if Isaiah is with God again, and God is talking to him, and he's saying, go comfort my people. Go tell them to behold the Lord our God. And, and, and so Isaiah is going to come. And again, it, you see the cosmos are going to be drawn in again. Why? Well, because God is going to bring a word of judgment to the nations and to the worlds. But he's also going to bring a message of hope and comfort to the worlds. In fact, as you progress through that second half of the book, you're going to see it ends to a new heavens and a new earth where we dwell with God again. I mean, it's a comprehensive, it's, a, it's an epic book in what it leads to, to comfort the people. Isaiah is trying to hold up God for us and saying, he is really the only one that you can trust and not be disappointed. He's the only one that you can hope in and not be disappointed. All the other things that you turn to, 
They will all fail you. They're all designed to fail. They're material, they're temporal, they're fallible. Only God uniquely is able to never disappoint you. And so we're going to look through some of these themes over the series. One of them is going to be his power, his power to provide for you, his power to protect you, his power to advance you in the path that he has for your life. You know, throughout the book of Isaiah, God is comparing himself to the idols that we worship. And it shows the stupidity of the idols. It shows the impotence of their ability to satisfy you. For example, in Isaiah 40, it says, To whom then will you compare me? Or what likeness will you compare with me? An idol? He says, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He is too poor, will make it out of wood. He says, behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. He who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth is emptiness. Lift up your eyes on high and see who, who created all these. He who brings out their hosts, the stars by their number, they calls them by name, by the greatness of his might and because of his strength and power. Not one is missing. In other words, God's saying, you worship idols made of stone and wood. Look at the stars. Who made all these? Is there any power? Is there any threat? Is there any challenge to you that is beyond his ability? You, we're going to see this in, in chapter 45 when God raises up Cyrus, this pagan king, for goodness sake. He, he raises up this pagan king and he uses this king and he calls him, he's my servant. This massive world ruler is my servant and he's going to repatriate the people back to the land. That's the power of God. I mean, God's asking you, if you're concerned about security, if you're facing something beyond your control, if you're anticipating running into things in life that you can't handle, who would you turn to besides the one who is all-powerful, all-glorious, whose arm is never too short? You know, turning to God for grace and help, and, and, and God, you must protect me, you must lead me. In any crisis, is his sovereign goodness not enough for us? That's what Isaiah is going to be calling us to. Another theme that's going to run through is the reality of judgment against sin. You know, you're going to see in chapters 13 to 23, summed up in 24, and we'll read in 34 as well, this idea that God judges sin, that God crushes the nations that sin. In fact, let me read just a, a piece of 34. He says, draw near, O nations, hear. Give attention, O peoples, let the earth hear, and all that fills it, the world, and all that comes from it. The Lord is enraged against the nations. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. This is the stuff we fly over. That does not. That's not easy to preach and make you feel great about today. But that's the reality of God. He judges. And let me tell you, he does. We're going to see that in the historical landscape in chapter 37. When there are close to 200,000 soldiers around Jerusalem from the Assyrian army, and, and, and they mock God. They mock God. You think you're going to trust in the Lord your God. He says, the king of Assyria has gobbled up nations. There is death, desolation in his path. 
And they write him a letter. And Hezekiah takes the letter to to the temple and says, God, this is what they're saying about you. And he trusts in God. And here's what God does. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. In the morning, they did nothing. They didn't lift a spear. They didn't pull an arrow. God destroys every one of them because they mocked him. And guess what? Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home lived at Nineveh, and when he was there worshiping in the house of his God, his son struck him down with the sword. He didn't escape God's hand of discipline and judgment. Isaiah calls us to trust God's perfect judgment. Our culture doesn't embrace God as a judge. Well, he didn't get the memo. He still thinks he's judge, and he still evidences power. In the flood, God brought judgment. Sodom and Gomorrah, God brought judgment. Even in that small little story in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, when they lie to God about what they give, boom, they're dead. I mean, God deals with sin. You don't see it any better than you see it in the cross of Christ. Then in the cross of Christ, you see the judgment of God fall upon a righteous son who is bearing our sins. We know that judgment fell because Jesus was the one that said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was bearing the curse for our sin and bore the full, the full wrath of God's fury. God was exhausted pouring fury out on the Son. He was spent. All of his judgment fell upon the Son. And through him we are saved. This is the gospel. This God who maintains justice He doesn't overlook sin. He doesn't just let bygones be bygones. He deals with it. And this is the warning for the non-Christian. See, for the Christian, we are under the mercy seat, covered by the blood of Christ, protected from the judgment of God as Jesus absorbs it for us so that we can be forgiven and declared innocent. The non-Christian has no mercy seat. He bears the judgment. As we read through Isaiah, we will see it, and it's very stark, and it's very bold, but it's very real, and it's very true. A a, a third theme that I want to bring up for you today and have you think about is is the idea of trusting God for salvation. We trust God for power. We trust God that that he will bring judgment. We also are called to trust God for salvation. Now, Now, God did save the people. He repatriated them to the land. Return from the exile. But there's more going on in Isaiah than just bringing back the people to the land. There's this idea of a greater salvation at work. And it's going to be coming about through a Messiah. Now, as I said, all kings are messiahs. But all kings aren't like this certain king. In other words, you begin to see this rumbling of a king in Isaiah 7. This child named Emmanuel. It's a unique name, God with us. And then you see a little more given in chapter 9 where this this child has royal titles given to it. Uh, But uniquely, and and while while this servant of Israel is going to be a picture of Israel, this king has a designation that his kingdom will never end. That's unusual. In chapter 11, you see this child called the Root of Jesse, that that he's going to have the spirit upon him, and he's going to move with might and power and justice. In other words, this this child, this king, is a Messiah. But unlike all the other kings of of Israel, he's going to be the quintessential Messiah. He's going to be the one to fulfill 
perfectly the requirements in Deuteronomy 17 about the king that God would have. And he is the perfect king. But then as you go through Isaiah, you're going to run into a servant. There's these servant passages. And, and these servant passages seem to lead us to a narrowing down of an individual, ultimately. And this, the individual servant here that becomes, it, it kind of gets the spotlight, uniquely is going to suffer. This, it's going to be a suffering servant. And what you find in Isaiah is that these two characters merge into one, that this king is also a suffering servant. And this is going to be the one that God provides for us to save us from our sin. See, God is holy, and so we cannot just be delivered and saved apart from God bringing about a means of salvation, which is going to be the Son. And we're going to see how Jesus is going to clear up the picture for us. In fact, in Revelation chapter 5, you see this picture of Jesus coming on the scene, and he's the lion, and he's the lamb. He's the king, and he's the servant. So and there's many other themes we're going to see, the holiness of God and the new heavens and the new earth. But, but I just wanted to try to pique your interest to begin reading this week that this message of judgment is married to a message of hope. In fact, in Isaiah 55, he says these words. He says, come. This is God speaking. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come. In other words, this isn't just for a certain group of people, a certain segment of society. He says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. God is inviting us to himself to find our hope and our trust in him alone. Out of all the prostituting hopes that are before you, he is offering himself as the one true hope. And this king's servant, Jesus, is the one who will lead us to him. But we come repentant. We come humbled. We're going to learn that the man who comes to God in Isaiah 66, he says, but this is the one to whom I shall look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. The one who turns from pride and self-salvation projects and appeals to God by faith. So, so I would ask you, you have Isaiah, this prophet. God has given him to us in this book. It's set in a context that we're going to find is not dissimilar to us. We don't have 185,000 soldiers surrounding this, this nation, but we, what we do have is all kinds of crises that will provide us opportunities that will display to us, do we trust and do we hope in God? Or are we turning to other idols and other people and other relationships, other things, governments for us? So, so let's take a minute now and just pray for God's grace. Um, and this is a time when we pray. Now, now, we can misuse this time. We can just pray for our own personal interests. We can pray, we can pray really long prayers and and perhaps impress people over our spirituality. We can misuse this time, or we can use this time well as a gathered church where we are praying collectively with one another in mind that God might grant to us things, that we, we can collectively give him words of praise for his grace to us in Christ, or we can appeal to him collectively for the needs that we all have, 
to better love his word, to better understand his son, to better trust in God as opposed to all those lusts that are vying for our attention. So let's use this time for this purpose. And, uh, and then um, an elder will close, Jack will close us in prayer. Let me begin, and uh, I would ask you if you do pray to pray loud and pray briefly so others can pray. And you, Father, thank you for um, your grace to us um, in this endeavor in which we, we begin. Father, would you give us um, grace to hunger and thirst and, and be diligent to work through um, all that you have given to us uh, in, this, in this precious book declaring your goodness and your comfort and your mercy. Open our eyes to see great things for your glory and for our joy.